please note that the views and opinions expressed by our guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the interviewer or any of the companies and organizations which may be mentioned. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. everyone and welcome to the Adventures of OT podcast. On today's show, we have a well-known guest, better known as an influencer. He's an author, an audiologist, but he's better known on social media as the threadist. He is a young from a young boy from Unongo, Kwanongoma. Hi, Ike. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for that intro. <laughs> How are you doing today? Okay, how are you? I'm good, thank you. So how did it come about for you to, you know, be labeled as the hashtag threadist? I, I'm actually the one who labeled myself that. And it's because I wrote a lot of threads and I was like, wouldn't it be cool if I like had a name for myself, like my own hashtag, but not really like hashtag I can dance it, but another name. And then I thought, hmm, threadist, and it worked, and people loved it. And yeah, that's how the, the name started. I gave myself that name. like you from Guanongoma um, find out about you know audiology and you know that there is a career as you know that is audiology I'm not gonna lie to you um, I didn't really know much about it except that uh, one of my cousins had a hearing loss and I know it was a late identified hearing loss and because of that he wasn't doing well at school um, until he was properly diagnosed by an audiologist. And that, by that time, he was 16. So it was kind of late because he was still doing grade five um, at the age of 16. So you, you can just imagine how demotivating that is for a teenager to be in grade mm-hmm. five um, at such an age. But yeah, he got diagnosed, got his hearing aids, and I could just see the kind of impact his hearing aids had on him. And every time he went to his um, audiologist appointment, he would come back like a better person, like literally every time. And one time I went with um, him and my aunt, and that was the first time I kind of knew about um, audiology. And I was, I I took a really um, great interest in it. And yeah. Years later, I'm an audiologist. <laughs> <laughs> that is actually so brilliant that, you know, we do have um, health care workers in, in areas such as you. So for someone who doesn't know Kwanongoma, um, where it is and the type of socioeconomic status that it is, um, could you maybe describe the environment? Yeah, it's a very rural area. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, but it has done quite well. Like I'm seeing like a lot of development throughout the years. But when I was still in high school, 
I, yo, it was so bad. Um, uh, we didn't have proper sanitation, um, long walks to school, no proper infrastructure, um, no enough health facilities. Even when you go to the health facilities, you are not finding staff there. Um, uh, okay, at least we did have electricity, but we didn't have running water. So we had to fetch water from like, you know, kilometers away. So it's that kind of a rural area. Um, even the audiologist I'm talking about, he was the only audiologist at um, the hospital in Guanongoma, and he was servicing quite a lot of areas, and he was just a one, you know. So, yeah, that wasn't nice. But now at least we have three audiologists, so the place in Guanongoma is really in, in, in improving. I'm actually so glad to hear that. And you know, when you speak about you had to walk, you know, for kilometers to get to school. Mm. Um, and then I think about, you know, when I was in varsity in Cape Town and I'd always encourage my one friend like, oh, um, let's go hiking. And she also comes from the rural Eastern Cape and she'd be like, <laughs> Kanya, I'm not interested in hiking. <laughs> I did I'm a lot walking. of walking. I've I did a lot walking. of work. <laughs> I relate. Um, I relate. Yeah. I I love hiking, but I relate because you're. We've been walking, hey. Like we've been walking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I when I actually saw where she's from, um, and the distance that she actually walked, then I understood why she hated hiking. And yeah. for me, it was like, oh, it's the best thing, you know. Yeah. And also, I think a thing about living in the rural areas is that obviously there are a lot of bushes there. So for us. Uh, you guys, people who grew up in the townships and in the suburban areas, they go hiking because that's the only time where they really get exposed to nature, you know? Whereas mm -hmm. for us in rural areas, we are surrounded by nature. So in other words, we basically hike every day. When you go to fetch water, you're hiking. Because <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're walking in a forest, you're walking in bushes. So you are hiking. When you go to school, you're hiking. Um, so that I think that's why a lot of people from the rural areas don't really take liking to the whole idea of walking for fun. Yeah, no, definitely. So for someone who's listening to this podcast and is like, okay, you grew up in a rural area and um, fortunately enough, you were able to go study at um, UKZN um, and now you're an audiologist. Um, how would you say, you know, the way that you actually grew up influenced the person that you are today? Shish, okay. Ah, okay, I don't want to be triggered right now because my childhood wasn't a perfect one. I don't think there's someone who has a perfect childhood anyway, but yeah, I don't want to be triggered right now. But um, growing up, I had quite a lot of responsibilities from a young age. Um, my mom had to work... Um, in a, at a different town and we could only see her twice a month so me being the eldest for my siblings um excluding my sister of course because my sister was living elsewhere at the time I was the eldest at home and I was taking care of my two younger siblings who were both in primary school um since grade seven I was doing that until matric so I had a lot of responsibilities from quite a young age I was forced to grow up um very quickly um but again, it's a blessing and a curse, a blessing in a sense that 
um, being responsible, I was already thinking way far ahead of me. I was already ensuring that my future was bright and that I wanted to get out of where I was. Um, so because of that, um, I did a lot of research onto uh, what I could possibly do in varsity, applying for bursaries. Um, but most importantly, it taught me how to be compassionate. Um, it taught me how to love people, how to have patience. Because when you are taking care of people in primary school who are younger than you, you will have patience, whether you like it or not. Um, cooking for them, cleaning for them, bathing them, making sure they get to school, making them breakfast, dinner, supper, lunch, going to their meetings, helping them with homework. Uh, all of that really teaches you um, humility, patience, com uh, compassion, and also just good time management skills. And because of that, I think I'm, I'm actually a better audiologist because of it, because I never look at people as patients in a sense that, okay, I'm just going to see you now and off you go. You know, I always see the person behind the patient. Uh, and I, I don't think I would have been able to be that way had I not had the responsibilities of taking care of so many people in my life from such um, a young age. So I would say that is how my upbringing um, kind of molded the person that I am and even the profession that the, the professional that I am today. I don't know if that um, quite answers you, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, from my side, it's it's just a matter of, yes, I just look after my siblings if my parents were at work, but I can't imagine the amount of responsibility it actually takes to look after not only yourself, but, you know, siblings and the household in its, as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot, but, you know, we grow from it and... Yeah, it 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 kind of does have its downfalls, but at the same time, as I said, it does it did add to the kind of person I am today. Um, mm. Especially being an audiologist who's more interested in working with children than adults, I think um, that's where it also comes from. Um, so yeah. Mm. I actually like uh, what you said about um, it's taught you how to be more compassionate and to look at the patient, not as just the diagnosis, but to know the person behind the diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and it actually makes me think of the conversation we just had off, off of the recording where you are like, as much as you get so many DMs and messages from people, you respond, you ensure that you respond, even if it's a month later. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where it comes from. Mm. So when did you actually realize, you know, that you had a talent to write? Yeah, um, I could say from primary school, um, even though it wasn't quite dominant, um, obviously, because I'm in primary school, so I didn't quite write a lot, but I was already doing like poetry uh, in mm. primary school. And then I only started writing my first, um, my first play when I was in high school in grade nine. And it was such a huge success. And we, I remember we, we even had like auditions at school for it and the teachers were supporting me. And it was such a, a great success, a great production at the school hall. People loved it. Parents loved it. And that's when I knew, oh, my God, I think I'm good at this. <laughs> 
because I had wrote the play, the school play. And mm. it ha- it was something that had never been done in our school before, again, because we are in a rural setting. Um, you know, people like to make a joke by saying, Uguti, uh, when you are in the rural areas, you get taught geography in Isizulu. You got taught basically everything in Isizulu. And then when the, when the question paper comes, everything is in English. Um, mm. And my play was in English. So f- for a lot of people, it was like a new thing at school. Um, but I'm, I'm so happy that I started a tradition because it's still something that's being done even till this day. Oh, wow. That's actually so amazing that, you know, they've still carried on with that. And I think it's such a great extramural activity for, for students and for people to just see if they actually have a talent, you know, in Definitely. acting or writing or singing. Definitely. Absolutely. So, so what was that play about? Because I think I saw an interview of yours on somewhere on the internet and mm-hmm. you were speaking about this play. So what was it about? So, okay, so I wanted the play to be, a, I wanted it to be a gay story, but mm. my English teacher was like, eh, people are not going to like this um, simply because of where we are, right? It's going to be very controversial. A lot of people are going to be against it. So we still made it a love story. Um, and then I had to, at that time, I had to include um um, sub stories of teenage pregnancy because that was something that that was quite prevalent in my community at that time, so mm-hmm. I had to include like um, sub stories of that. But most importantly, it was a love story. It was a love story. <laughs> I love that you say it was a love story and you're giggling <laughs> <laughs> because um, I'm just thinking, you know, that story. It was, you know, when you're in high school. Um, and you are fantasizing about the perfect love story. And you, you know, when you watch movies overseas, it's like, oh, to a boy and a girl, um, they bump each other, books fall down, and then they both reach for the books, then they look at each other in the eye, and then they have a moment, and boom, love at first sight. So I wanted, like, I created that, but a South African version, but I wanted it to be a boy and a boy, but I couldn't do that. Ugh. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I, that was the story. That was the story. <laughs> That's very sweet. Like, I remember my friends and I at Varsity, because we were always at the library, and we'd always say, when do we bump into someone and then we pick up a book, or we both, <laughs> or we both try and pick the same book, and then, you know, it's what you're saying, the love at first sight. <laughs> yes, yes. I was such a dream. I still am. I, I think I've always been that way. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I understand that your, your writing has also taken a sort of a turn. So now yes. you're no longer really writing, you know, romantic books, but you know, it's more like horror. It's, it's horror. It's, <laughs> it's dark. Yeah, it's dark as, <laughs> as a lot of people have, have liked to, to, to name it. And yes. you have recently re- released a book as well. Can you mm-hmm. tell us more about that and what really, um, facilitated you to move into that side of writing oh okay so at first I didn't really want it to be about scaring people it was more of um, teaching people about African spirituality now when we talk about African spirituality we know there are definitely going to be topics that are quote-unquote scary to other people um, Mm. simply because that's how 
um, African spirituality has been labeled for years. People label it as dark magic, voodoo, uh, witchcraft, you know. So obviously me discussing such stories, people were like, oh, you saw you writing about horror. So I was like, oh, okay, that's what we're calling it. Okay, I'm writing horror then. Um, but what influenced me to even move into that space is because I am from um, a very cultural, very traditional family. Um, my maternal grandmother is a practicing healer. My great grandmothers, my forefathers, all of them were healers, um, even from our clan names. Um, if you know what clan names are, but yeah, we were basically healers. Uh, I come from a long lineage of healers. So I was like, okay, I'm interested in actually learning about this. And while I learn about it, I want to also teach about it. Um, but of course, the only way that I could do that was if I gave the stories I learned about a twist so that people our age, the millennials and Gen Z could <laughs> relate to those stories. Um, yeah, so that, that is what um, made me move into the horror fiction genre. Um, I, I do still write about, you know, romance, even though it's not... I don't have an interest in, in it anymore, um, mm. but I do still, like, dabble a little bit in it. Um, just like in my book, which is titled Umtagat the Witch. Mm. Um, so my book is a a hunting exploration of the lives of the Zwani sister wives. So it's about a man who um, had four wives um, and the setting obviously is in KZN because, you know, Zulu men are famous for having many wives. Um, so, <laughs> so that's where the story is based. Uh, I made it that way because my own grandfather had four wives. So I was like, hmm, that would actually be interesting if I, you know, did it that way. Um, the different dynamics that comes with that, the drama, the chaos, uh, it's juicy, right? Mm. But now, um, how I did it was that I wanted it to explore African spirituality as well as the existence of dark entities that are not new to the South African soul. I think as Africans, especially South Africans, we all grew up hearing about, um, you know, stories <laughs> i don't want to say witchcraft stories but i just want to say yeah we all grew up hearing about paranormal stories rather yeah. um yes so it's 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 stories that are not really new to us i just gave them a twist so that they can be applicable to our generation and so that our generation can like fully understand it so um the book is about that and in that homestead name um they are definitely, they are obviously evil events that are happening um, and they are orchestrated by some members of the family. So now the reader has to just figure out um, who the culprit is, who is the mastermind behind all the evil that is happening there, all the tragedies, all the horror that's taking place in there. But yeah, so that's what the book is about. It's almost like a mystery horror fiction book mm. um and i did obviously infuse some stories about the lgbtqi plus community because i wanted to raise awareness on that especially with the misconception that um you know the lgbtqi plus community is a thing that just started now i wanted to make it clear that it's something that has been in our families it's just that it was always kept under the carpet and now 
um, it's a different generation where we're not afraid to live our true, our authentic lives, you know, our true self. So, yeah, so I, I did explore that as well. I also explored um, subtopics of um, abuse as well. Um, yeah, a lot of other interesting stuff. You are one definite um, creative and writer. Um, so for someone who is, you know, interested in reading your book, where can they purchase it on, you know, online stores or just even maybe is it in bookstores already? Okay, so for now, they can just get it directly from me. Um, I don't have an e-book copy released yet, and that's because I still want to have um, a book launch. I, I couldn't do a book launch because we were still on lockdown and COVID and everything. And I felt like since COVID robbed me of um, a graduation ceremony in university, I was like, I am not going to allow it to rob me yet again of another celebration. So I'm going to just keep postponing until, um, you know, the COVID restrictions are a bit more lenient. So I will only release an ebook when I have done a book launch, um, hopefully in the next two months or so. Um, yeah, so for now, they can just directly contact me or they can email my team as well at ikindanzibooks.gmail.com and yeah, my team will be able to help them. Uh, you know, you're mentioning that you got robbed of your graduation and I feel the same sentiment. <laughs> and I see that a few people will be graduating, you know, in this month, in the coming month. Oh, and I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I when think... you're studying, you know, when you're studying, ne? you're like, yo, I, I want to sleep. But you're like, no, I have to pass because I also want to strut that walk on that runway exactly. and get my degree. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, it didn't happen. And yeah, sad. It's very sad. <sighs> um, and and I, I like that you, you mentioned in your book that, you know, you touch on a lot of topics which and controversial topics. Um such as, you know, LGBTQI plus. Um, and I wanted to know how has your community, you know, as you, an individual coming from a lineage of, you know, Zulu um, family and you know how, how strict and the whole Zulu culture is, mm -hmm. how have you been received as a young member of the LGBTQI plus community? Oh, sheesh. That one is a, is a bit difficult to talk about because my family, it, it, it's never been a subject. I'm not even going to lie. It's never been something that is spoke of. But at mm. the same time, I've never been othered in my family. So I never felt in any way, um, what's the word? For a, lack, for a lack of a better word, I'll just say I've never been othered by my family. Um, mm. At the same time, we've never really talked about me being gay. Um, so I, I really can't, I really can't say, hey, but uh, for now, I think, I think, uh, no, actually, I can't really even comment on that because it's something that we've never really spoken about. Even me coming out, I've never really came out to my family except that it was those moments when, for example, my mom would be like, oh, when am I seeing your boyfriend? So I'm like, oh, okay, so you know I'm gay. 
but then again i just answer and we just keep it moving it's it's not a thing you know mm. um and even in my paternal side of the family they be asking me oh when are you getting married when are we when are we seeing the husband are you gonna adopt so i'm like Okay, so these people clearly know that mm-hmm. I'm gay. But I also think the reason for that is because they watch a lot of my YouTube videos. And obviously, if you watch my YouTube videos, you know what's happening. And exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I think I'm just going to say, I guess they they accepted it quite well, even though we've never really spoken about how they feel about me, their son, being gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I, I, I like that, you know, you didn't have to do the quote unquote coming out mm-hmm. um, and that you, you know, you're able to to live as as you are and your family is able to be like, yes, this is who you are. And we're accepting as opposed to, you know, having to do the whole sit down and oh, again, you know, quote unquote, yeah. come out to your parents. Yeah, you're, I'm so grateful that I I didn't have to do that. Or that I haven't done that because I used to, growing up, I used to watch a lot of YouTube videos um, of people coming out, um, uh, well, in America. And all the white parents would be like, oh, we still love you. We still love you. And all the black parents would be like, (laughs) no, we're taking you to church. Um, You're demonic. You're possessed. And obviously, Mm. those were also sentiments that I carried with me for quite a long time. I thought... I was convinced I was, I was gay. I remember at some point, this is actually a funny one. I even wrote about it on one of my threads. Um, mm-hmm. When my school was experiencing what a lot of people call demonic positions. So the principal brought in a few pastors and priests to pray over us. And everyone was falling and talking in tongues and screaming and Oh, and confessing what they do in the dark world and stuff like that. And I remember sitting to myself thinking, oh God, I'm probably going to also drop dead and scream and a demon is going to come out because I'm gay. Mm. Um, I literally kept on waiting for my turn and it never happened. So after that day, I was like, okay, I guess not. I guess, I guess I'm not possessed. <laughs> I, I actually remember reading that thread and like I'm saying, you're very talented. Like your writing, it keeps <laughs> us all in suspense until you, you know, you dropped all the bombs. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. That was actually, I remember that was actually the first thread I've ever written on Twitter. Uh, it was about that experience, and a lot of people loved it. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, it's the one thread that made me, if I can say, because that's the thread that had full makers knocking at my door saying Mm -hmm. we love what you do Uh, please write more would you like to write for us and I ended up making a lot of money from them so yeah yeah oh wow um are you writing still and are you you know giving it to filmmakers or have you taken a break I am writing still um, but I did take a six months l- long break simply because I was dealing with like my mental health. I felt like it was something that I had pushed aside for so long that when it made me collapse, I was like, okay, now this is serious. Um, yeah, so I just, I stopped writing um, for a bit, but now I'm back to writing again. I'm writing my second novel. I'm writing more threads, which are not published yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys should you guys should be on the lookout for those. Um, and yes, I have written for a few filmmakers. 
Um, uh, it's it's still under works. You guys are gonna see. You guys, you guys are still gonna see. Yeah. Ah, oh, I'm hoping you could drop a few more hints. Oh. <laughs> Where are we seeing it? <laughs> no. No, I know, I'm not... I, know it's, I know it's not allowed. So yes, you'll it's just not allowed. you'll just you know drop it once it, everything has dropped. Yes, when yeah, when I get the green lights from them, and then I will let everybody know. Yes. Yeah. Um. So going back to your YouTube channel and. Um, what do you post on your YouTube channel? So there's there's a hashtag that you started, which is hashtag surviving homophobia. What drove you to to have that on your channel and to start that hashtag? Yeah, triggers. Talk about triggers. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I, so I, when I started my YouTube channel, right, it was more focused on entertaining people because, well, people think I'm funny. And people think my life is interesting. So I was just talking a lot about things that are happening in my life and stuff like that until I was like, wait a minute, I think I should have a a segment that is more meaningful on my channel, a segment that uh, will help a lot of people, especially in my community. So I was like, okay, um, I want to talk about things that are happening to my people in my community. Um, so I'm just going to call it surviving homophobia because that's the one, that's the one common thing that people from my community in this country are facing every single day, uh, Mm. which again, for me is something that I've always faced, even from the age of six. I remember the first time, um, when I knew that I was different because you know, when you're a child, you just think, um, just like everybody else or everyone else is just like me. And um, uh, my mom dropped me off at school. I was six. And I remember during school break, a lot of boys came who were in the senior phase. A lot of of them came and be like, they were like, um, you know, they use that word that I hate. They're like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's Tabane. And I'm six, guys. Imagine I'm I'm a six-year-old. They're like, oh, it's in the way he walks. It's in the way he talks. And he's playing with girls. He has paper dolls. I don't know if you know what paper dolls are, but I had those. And I remember going home asking my gran, um, what what is Istaban? And she never gave me an answer, but I could just see from her facial expression that it was obviously not something nice. Um, so yeah, it's, I've always been bullied for being gay throughout my whole school life, even in university, even now, uh, as an adult. So that's why I started that, um, that, um, that segment on my channel to not only raise awareness about the difficulties that we face as the LGBTQI plus community, but to also kind of let, um, people who are in my in my community perhaps who are way younger than me know that they're not alone and that uh, you can survive it you can make something of yourself um that it does get better um yeah because when you're growing up you're always searching for people who are like you and you want to know how they did it how they are surviving does it get better you know so that's why i i started that hashtag and hopefully i'll be having more people on there especially because i'm in joburg now 
Um, mm. Meaning I'm exposed to a lot of people who are out of the closet. One of my challenges in Durban was that a lot of people were not out simply because of KZN as the province, obviously, you know, they are more conservative and stuff. Mm. So yeah, that's why I started that. And I think it's it's such a meaningful segment to have on, on your show or on your YouTube channel, especially like what you're saying, that there are people, they might not even be younger than you, they might be older mm. and they're seeing that and, you know, they are able to then look within themselves and say, actually, you know, I'm fine and they're accepting of themselves as well because I know a lot of the time that can also be a difficulty in terms of accepting, accepting oneself. Yes. yes. Mm. Mm. So another video that you posted on your YouTube channel oh, was, <laughs> um, you know, look, I watched most of your videos. They're quite, the first ones are quite hilarious. And then, you know, you start becoming more serious as the years progress. Yeah. Um, where you highlight, you know, you spoke about black tax. Um, but the one that really stood out to me is your latest one, which was, about you know your mental health like you mentioned that earlier in this segment that you know you even collapsed at work as a result of that so Mm -hmm. how has your mental health you know taken a knock over the past uh, few years um, and how has it influenced you in terms of your ability to then engage in not just you know your role of work but as just a general person and your health and well-being I'm not sure if I phrased that question correctly but how has your mental health um, basically influenced and impacted you yeah i'm not okay firstly you before i answer that you need to understand the type of person that i am mm. i am always busy i always keep myself busy um and i think i only took my mental health only took a knock because of lockdown because now when you have lockdown you don't have a lot of things to do and you spend a lot of time by yourself and when mm. you spend a lot of time by yourself, that's when you realize that, oh my God, I'm actually, um, I'm not okay emotionally and mentally. Um, but of course, if you're someone who's always keeping busy, you will never know. Um, so I did ignore my mental health for, I think subconsciously, not intentionally, um, uh, which I also think uh, is the result of the kind of childhood that I had where I was like no I can't afford to break down I have to take care I have to take care I have to take care of people um Mm. so I I kind of kept that with me and because of that I didn't deal with things that were troubling me even from childhood that were troubling me at that present moment and it was only until I again how I when I collapsed at work that I knew that something was wrong now I just have to say, when I collapsed, I didn't know what the cause was. I was thinking maybe my blood pressure was low or like something else happened until mm. when my doctor was like, you had a panic attack. I'm like, huh? panic attack? What is that? And imagine you are a health professional and you have no idea what a panic attack is. Mm. Even in the workplace, it's only now that people are kind of paying attention to mental health but before then no one really spoke about it uh people that were diagnosed with mental disorders would would often keep it a secret um uh yeah so i also didn't know so when my doctor was like yep it was a panic attack uh he suggested that i start seeing someone 
And after when I was diagnosed with um, depression and anxiety, I was like, okay, I need to understand this. And the more I went to therapy, the more I understood why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And um, I was able to start my journey of healing. And yeah, so as a whole, obviously, when I got depressed, I eventually stopped doing things that I enjoyed doing. So I stopped writing, I stopped singing, I stopped, um, I haven't stopped watching movies, guys. That's how depressed I was. And I had bad coping mechanisms. I gained a lot of weight and then I was depressed because of that. Um, and so being more reserved. Uh, so I basically became the opposite of myself. Um, mm. But for some weird reason, my work was not affected. I don't know how that happened. But it's almost like every day when I walked into that room, I got so excited because I was like, oh, my God, I'm not at home. Finally, I'm going to keep busy. Finally, I'm going to help some patients. I'm going to be in control. So my work was not affected. Instead, my work um, actually improved quite a lot because I was like more focused on I was using it as a coping mechanism, which is Mm. bad. Um, Yeah, but that's how my social life went to a zero. Um, yeah, so it, it only affected me, like, I guess I could say in my personal life. Um, yeah, yeah. I think what I picked up from that is how you said you had more control at work, which yes. is what a lot of us usually f- find ourselves in, in that, you know, I can control this. Because when you were speaking, I was like, oh, sounds like me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have control over something. And for example, in your case, it was work. And, yes. and a lot of the time, I, like you said, it's a coping mechanism because I've got control over this as much as everything else may be falling apart. But that one thing that you do have, you know, the power over and control over is what really does keep you going. Um and I think that's what happens with a lot of people a lot of the time. Um, but what would you say to someone who may be, you know, having mental health difficulties at the moment? Because as you know, on social media, we're seeing a lot of people who are actually taking their lives as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, okay. Um, so I, I would definitely say reach out to somebody, especially not, not just anybody, but a professional. Now I know that in South Africa, we have a lack of resources um, and there aren't enough uh, mental health professionals and the ones that are there are overworked because oh god yeah you know the states that our country is in but I would really recommend that they they seek help whether it's online because now I know there are even um, virtual platforms where you can um, seek help there is, I think it's called SADAG, S-A-D-A-G. Mm-hmm. Yes, that you can reach out to. They are on WhatsApp. Uh, you can reach them through SMS. You can, they can call you back, you, you know, so you have those options. There are also NGOs that are available right now. Um, just, you just have to take a step and reach out. You just have to reach out. Um I, I don't I don't believe in, in self-help in terms when you are you know struggling with your mental health. I do not believe in self in self-help. I believe there should be somebody who is not experiencing what you're experiencing so that you get a different perspective, someone who will be able to analyze why you think 
the things you think and mm. why you react the way you do and, and then try to find means for you to keep moving forward whether it's through medication whether it's through cognitive behavioral therapy um or whatever means but just reach out that's yeah that's all you have to do just reach out definitely and i think because um like like you were saying in our in our home environments we didn't necessarily always touch on you know mental health as a topic um but now our society is really focusing on mental health and trying to break that stigma that is around mental health and i feel um as difficult as it, it may be, but trying to seek help is is what can and does usually help. Yeah, yeah, mm. it really does. Like you can go to, if you cannot afford it, you can, um, because it is quite pricey in private, I'm not going to lie. Um, it is quite pricey because you usually find prices ranging from 950 to 2000 rands per hour um so if you're somebody who's not on medical aid or someone who's not working even if you are working that's that's a lot um mm. so but you can still find prof- health professionals in in the public sector in your community health care centers clinics and hospitals so yeah definitely so you're a an individual that wears many hats um, one of them obviously being that you're an audiologist. Mm-hmm. Um, for someone who's listening and they're like, I'd love to become an audiologist or maybe I should become an audiologist or I'm not really sure what I want to do, but audiology sounds like something I'd like to do. Um, what subjects does one actually need? So now we're going all the way back to high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, what subjects does one actually need to qualify for the course? So you need to have pure, what people call pure meds, so not meds lit. You need pure meds mm-hmm. and you need life sciences and um, physical sciences as well. Those are like your primary um, subjects that you definitely need in order to get into the course, which I think it's the same um, subject as OT, I think, the same subject you would need to, call, to be able to enter into OT, right? Yes. Um, so you would need those subjects as well. Um, but I think with OT, there's, um, you can either have life science or physics. Um, but I think right now they're actually promoting for one to have both life both, science and both, physics. Both, yeah. In UKZN, I know it was both. Yeah. It was both, yeah. Because we actually also do, or at the university where I was at, we also, uh, BSC, we also yes. did um, yes. physiology and, and, yeah. and so the physics parts, yeah. Yeah, so then you would need the, the physics mod, uh, subjects as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those so, are the subjects that you need. Definitely. So I'd like for you to take us through your day as an audiologist. Um, what do you do? Okay, so firstly, we'd need to decide what kind of an audiologist because there are different kinds. Um, okay. So, yes, so you have a clinical audiologist. Uh, this one you find in hospitals, in your community healthcare centers and clinics. Um, and then you have an industrial audiologist, which is what I'm currently doing now. Uh, meaning I work more for, um, for big firms, big industrial areas. So your mining um, companies, uh, production companies. So that's where you're based. Um, and then, yeah. And then you also have an educational audiologist who works uh, in special schools. And then you have obviously a research audiologist who works for 
um, who works in academia, right? So right mm-hmm. now, I am working as um, an industrial audiologist, right, for a private mine. Obviously, mines are private. What am I saying? Yeah. So I'm working. <laughs> I'm working for a mine here in Joburg. Um, and then on weekends, I work as a home interventionist and clinical audiologist for uh, an NGO um, called High Hopes by the University of Vitz. Um, so I do that on weekends. Um, yeah. So what would normally, um, let me just, okay, let me use the context of a clinical audiologist rather, because that's the more common one, right? Is that fine? Okay. Yes, that's fine. So what you would normally do, um, you, um, when a patient comes in, if it's a new patient, you would do your case history. Uh, I believe you know what case history, case history is. Yes. Um, yeah. So after doing that, obviously you then get to know what, what are the needs of the patient, what the patient is struggling with. And then that's what you use to assess your, your patient. So if your patient, for example, is complaining of a hearing loss, which everyone who comes to the audiologist complains of, you will ask them, when did it start? Is it one ear, two ears? Are you on any medication? Um, is there anyone who has hearing loss in your family? Are you working in a noisy environment? Um, do you have any current infections? Things like that. And then from that information, you basically decide on your test battery. So... Um, you would do your otoscopic examination, your pure tone audiometry to assess the inner ear. And then just from those three basic tests, you will then get a feel of where the patient is in terms of hearing and where the problem is and the degree as well. Um, if you are not um, satisfied with your results, you can go ahead and do your electrophysiological tests, like your ABR, your um, um, OAEs, those ones are more those ones are more required when you're really not sure of your results or when you want to confirm something that you are um, not quite sure with in terms of the three um, basic tests that you did. Um, so after doing those, you then explain to the patient and then from there you decide whether they are they are going to get a hearing aid or they are going to go for oral rehab or they want a cochlear implant or they want an FM system um, or they need a speech therapist. And yeah, so basically that's what you do. As a clinical audiologist, you assess for any hearing um, losses, the cause of the hearing loss. You need to find a solution for it. Um, whether it is through hearing aid devices or whether it's through um, oral rehab or speech therapy. And of course, you refer to other professionals if you need to. So your ear, nose, throat, um, ear, nose and throat specialist, your OTs, if, you, if, if maybe the hearing loss is affecting, um, affecting them at, at work. So you would normally also you know, bring an OT in or a social worker if you need to. So that, that is what your day would normally entail. Uh, on some days, you need to program hearing aids and then you feed them with hearing aids. And yeah, that's, that's what an audiologist would do. But most of the time, you work, with, uh, you work on an MDT basis, um, mm. especially with a speech therapist. We, we work very closely with um, um, speech therapists. So with that being said, you know, a clinical audiologist, um, would you say then 
the role of an industrial audiologist is similar or what makes an industrial audiologist um, different to a clinical audiologist? So the difference is that when you are an industrial audiologist, you basically more or less dealing with people who have the same um, hearing loss, which is noise-induced hearing loss. Um, and that is um, hearing loss due to being exposed to loud levels of noise over an extended period of time. Um, where in a clinical setting, you would find different um, um, types of hearing loss ranging from just being infections and um, injuries and stuff like that. Um, but I would say the biggest difference is that when you are an industrial audiologist, you work closely with um, engineers, which you don't in clinical audiology. Um, you have responsibility also of assessing the amount of noise being made by the equipment in the in the facility and ensuring and and, and trying to find means to actually lower those levels. So that's how you work hand in hand with engineers to find ways to um, lower those um, noise levels. And then you need to monitor all the workers on a, on a three month basis to kind of see if their hearing, hearing is shifting. If it is shifting, that means the noise in that particular noise zone is affecting them and you need to move them to a different area with less levels of noise. What you also do there is, yes, you do dispense some hearing devices, but what you usually dispense is your hearing protective devices. And these are your earmuffs, um, uh, basically things that you can you use uh, to protect your ears from the noise. And there are different types, um, the type of noise you are exposed to. Sometimes it's not even just the noise. Um, there is a company that I worked for in the past where they were producing paint. Um, so now with paint, they didn't have audiologists, a lot of audiologists there because they assumed, well, we don't have equipment that makes a lot of noise. So we don't need audiologists there until they realized that the fumes from the chemicals that they use to make paint actually affect the, the hearing of the patient. So now they have someone there who who will monitor that. And as soon as the shift happens, they need to act quick and remove that employee from, from that area. Um, another thing also, which is different, is that over there you will help um, patients claim from the companies when they have been diagnosed with hearing loss um, because mm. obviously they got the hearing loss from working at that place, so they need to claim for that. Mm. Yeah. That's actually so interesting because I literally thought of audiology as, you know, just the clinical audiologist and I didn't go as far as thinking about the minds, but now you've highlighted a, an even more important, you know, fact that you, even the pain fumes can, can mm. cause hearing loss. That's how, how yeah. does that happen? So we have something called autotoxicity, right? So those are chemicals that are toxic to the ear. So there we are talking not only about fumes that are used to produce paint and, and stuff, but we are also talking about um, some chronic medications as well. Chemotherapy is autotoxic. Um, so any, any chemical, any medication that is um, toxic to the ear, we, we, we call it autotoxic. And how, how it happens is that 
excuse me. So how it happens is obviously you're inhaling um, those fumes, right? The different chemicals and fumes. Okay, let me just start with fumes. How fumes will affect the air is, isn't it you you are uh, inhaling them through your nose and your nose is connected to your eustachian tube and the eustachian tube is a part of the ear. So in that way, you are exposing your ear to those fumes and those fumes will then slowly but surely um, degrade and and um, impact the hair cells in the inner ear and sometimes even cause some middle ear infections as well. And then in terms of chronic medications, obviously, and via bloodstream, it will um, affect some nerves in the ear, some hair cells and some hearing hair cells. And yeah, so that's how you would end up having something called sensory neural hearing loss. Uh, which is an irreversible type of hearing loss. Wow, that is actually so interesting. I had no idea. Firstly, ne, we have implants, then we have devices. Mm-hmm. Um, when you say implants, you're more or less leaning towards cochlear implants, which involve because it's, it's an implant, it has to involve surgery. Um, whereas devices, now we're talking about hearing aids, which are the most common um, means of hearing that people with hearing loss or deafness use, right? So with hearing aids, the ones that you would normally see um, behind a, a, um, someone's ear, um, yeah, so those ones, they can last you a, a normal... Beat first grade, BTE, would, can last you for more than 10 years, actually. Because how they work is, how they work is they, they get programmed over time. So obviously, as you grow older, all of us, as we, we are growing older, our hearing changes. So even with people with hearing continue to grow older, their hearing loss will continue to go down, meaning they, it will get worse over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so as that happens, then an audiologist would have to retune and reprogram the hearing aid to fit the needs of um, that person. Hence why, um, and I love this about my profession, I think you, and you as an OT and maybe some speeches and some physios would relate is that we never see patients on like a one-time basis. Most of our patients, they will have reoccurring appointments. Um, mm. Some of them will know for more than five, 10 years even. Um, mm. So yeah, even with audiology, patients have to keep on coming to retest so that we can see and monitor the hearing loss uh, to see if there's a change. If there is a change, then we need to um, upgrade the settings or retune the settings on the hearing aid. Um, and then now a cochlear implant, that one requires surgery and that one is very expensive. Um, um, and yeah, that one is a bit tricky because it's, it's not always a success. So you can do the surgery, but then find out that um, it doesn't actually work for you. Um, but on the, on the nicer side, it's that um, it can actually offer you more than what an, a, a hearing aid can offer you, especially um, when we're talking about infants and, 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 and in children. Um, 
and that one can also last you a, a lifetime because it's literally inside your ear like inside your bones and yeah mm. um so you know you're speaking about the price of a cochlear implant um how much is the price for a hearing aid because i've heard that uh, a lot of these gadgets can be quite expensive they can especially as now that the you know technology is advancing literally every day and we're being introduced to new hearing aids every year so the price like continues to go higher um but um in private Okay, let me start in, 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 in the public sector. So what normally happens is that companies, so your hearing aid companies would will get tenders from the government to provide hearing aids to uh, the public hospitals and, and public community healthcare centers, right? Um, so normally patients in those kind of settings don't have to pay for anything. So it, it's free. Um, but if you are in private, an entry hearing aid uh, will be, will start from like 6,000 rands um, per hearing aid. So if you have, if you need it on both ears, so we're talking 12,000 rands mm-hmm. um, and it can even go as, as high as 50,000 rands. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's how they cost. But in public, I know because of the tenders, you don't have to pay for anything especially if you, uh, you went to a community healthcare center. In some hospitals, in some district hospitals, rather, they, if you are working, they do ask that you pay at least 50% or a certain percentage of um, the price. And it's not much because they, they get it um, via the government tender. So you would normally have to pay like 500 rands or like 1,000 rands to meet mm. the hospital halfway. But mm. the cochlear implant can does not cost anything less than five hundred thousand rands. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, uh, but that's because it involves a lot of tests and a lot of prof, uh, prof health professionals. So if you are gonna get a hearing aid, you just have to see an audiologist, really. And in in some cases, in rare cases, you need to see an ENT as well, depending on what um, your hearing loss is. Uh, but when we're speaking about the cochlear implant now, you need to see um, radiologists so that they can take CT scans and and um, what you call x-rays of you so that the ENT can understand your bone structure. Um, and if they can see if they, you know, they can be able to perform the surgery on you, you need to see um physiotherapist you need to see OTs you need to see speech therapist you need to see even um, um, a psychologist because they need to find out why you think you need that do you think it's going to make your 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 life normal Um, because there's no such thing as normal Um, Mm. yeah so it involves quite a lot of um, other professionals um, your surgeons um, if nurses and then because it's a surgery, it needs your pain medication. So pharmacists and mm. yeah, so that's why it's quite, um, it's quite expensive. And, and it's quite integrated because there's so many, actually it's most of the health professionals. Yes, almost uh, all of them. Yeah, almost all health professionals would be part of that process. Yeah. 
But what? So, but but the person who is like almost the project manager of that entire process is the audiologist, because mm-hmm. even after the surgery, the audiologist is the one that performs uh, a procedure called mapping, um, uh, which is almost similar to how you would fine tune a hearing aid um, to make sure that the hearing aid is working and the patient is able to hear. Mm. that's actually very interesting because then i come to the thoughts of okay i know in uh, quite a few of our hospitals there's like waiting lists for our public hospitals there's like waiting lists for wheelchairs Mm. and then it makes me think of you know hearing aids is that the same case for people who need hearing aids um yes and no um, I, I've had the privilege of being exposed to different kinds of, um, um, what should I call it? I don't want to say environments, but I want to say, um, so I've been exposed to different kinds of economic backgrounds or in economic communities. Let me, yeah, let me put it that way, uh, where I've been able to work in a rural setting and also a metropolitan setting. And in the rural setting, so hospitals like your Inguelizane, your Benedictine Hospital, uh, your Arkekans, um, your Ishoe hospitals, um, those hospitals, um, you will definitely find waiting lists there. Definitely. And long ones at that. But when you come to, let's say, Hillborough um, Community Healthcare Center or Discoverers or Mofolo Clinic or Linesia. Like, they are waiting lists, but they're not that long because um, I guess services are, are more efficient this side. Um, when I was doing my community service here, I never really had long uh, waiting lists. I, I never really did. But in KZN, you're, you're, there were just yeah, a lot of waiting lists. Um, I know in my hometown, when you need a hearing aid, it's never fitted in, in, in your, what you call, in your hospitals. You kind of need to go to a district hospital to kind of get yourself a hearing aid. So I know all the people from like Ulundi, Unongoma, Engutu, Enkanda, all these people need to travel to district hospitals just to get hearing aids. And because of that, um, you know, they will definitely be long lists. Yeah. Mm. And I'm just yeah. thinking about that financial, you know, strain on families who might not even have that money for a taxi or a bus to get yeah. to hospitals. Yeah. Which and, and- is, um, sorry to cut you on that. I just wanted to say, which is why I actually like the the organization that I'm with now. Um, by the University of Vets, where they're saying, no, don't come to us, we will come to you. So how they were, how high, I don't know if you know about High Hopes. No, I've actually never heard of High Hopes. So High Hopes is, how it works is, they are in communication with all audiologists, with all ENTs, all speech therapists from all the hospitals nationwide. And so immediately when an infant is diagnosed with the hearing loss, or when um, um, an infant is suspected to have hearing loss, they get referred to High Hopes. And then what High Hopes does, it has home interventionists all around the country comprising of um, special education, um, 
special ed um, teachers, um, social workers, sign language interpreters, audiologists, OTs, uh, physios, and all these professionals who will then go into the homes and uh, basically assist the families throughout the whole process of diagnosis, getting treated with hearing aids and, and things like that, because um, they understand that when a child is under, in, is diagnosed with a hearing loss, that will have quite a huge toll on the family, mm. um, especially if no one has had hearing loss in that family, especially if that family is disadvantaged, which most of them are. Um, so yeah, so instead of them traveling all the way, uh, trying to find these services, um, High Hope says, no, we will come to you. That's actually so brilliant. Um, for a, a health professional who's listening and they're like, yo, I would like to be part of that organization. Is it possible? If so, how does one you know, become a part of the organization? It is possible. Um, you can always email um, the organization. Just a, a quick Google will we'll get you everywhere, I always say. Um, mm-hmm. So, you, yeah, just Google and you will see High Hopes by Verts. Uh, and then you will see their contact details and then you can get in, in contact with a provincial leader who will then explain to you the steps you basically need to take in order to become what they call a home interventionist. Um, because obviously you are offering early childhood um, intervention in the homes. Um, yeah, but what it entails is you need, they first need to train you. Um, because you are not going there as a clinical health professional. You need to also go there as someone who understands the dynamics of um, uh, families across South Africa. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously now safety is also involved. So you can't just go there. You need to be aware of all these things and, um, and how to conduct yourself when you're there. You are not in charge because it's their home. They are in charge. They take all the decisions. So for example, I could go into a home where they have an infant that has been diagnosed with deafness and I say to them, okay, this is what deafness is. These are the challenges you may face in the future. Um, These are the options that you have in terms of communication. They can use sign language. You can try them having them to speak. They can use both. They can use writing. They can use this or that. And then the patient has, the, the family has to say, no, we would like to pursue this. Again, mm. even when it comes to devices, you, you give them the, the list of devices that are available and you allow them to pick a device. You choose on that. We also let them choose if they want it to be less visible to the eye. So they, they want it to be smaller and not just like a big hearing aid. Um, mm. Those we can have them choose. But uh, yeah, so maybe you can give them just three options and they just pick from the three. But in most cases, you just, you, yeah, you, you pick for them, whichever one, which will be um, beneficial for them. And then they can just pick like things like color and uh, how visible it is, especially because young people, they never like a hearing aid that's like more visible. They want it to be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so th- that one, we can allow you to choose. We do allow them. But with high hopes, the parents make decisions. Mm. Yeah. Ike, you know, you sound so passionate and I can hear, you know, we could actually go on for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and I actually I've learned so much about audiology, especially that the fact that there's different types of audiologists. 
Um, and I really want to thank you for allowing me into your world of what you do um, and for me to learn more. And obviously, this is also for the listeners to learn more about your profession and about you, to be quite honest. <laughs> We've now come to the final segment of the podcast. Um, so this segment, I ask you five questions um you'd either answer in one word or one sentence okay you've listened to the message and all the ot lessons you're running out of seconds it's time for the final segment there's a minor reminder of what you're all about to witness rapid fire with kanye welcome to five fire questions five fire questions Oh God, okay. One word or one sentence. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. I mean, Bring it on. We're gonna try. We're gonna try. <laughs> Bring it on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so the first question I have for you is how did it feel to be identified as the top ten pride vloggers to look out for? Hmm. Okay. I was excited. That's a sentence. <laughs> I was excited. <laughs> I was thrilled. Yeah, I was. I was just excited because I was like, "Okay, now I'm giving you long answers. Sorry, sorry." No, no, I, you can give me the long answer. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I was excited because I was like, "What in Africa?" Okay, um, mm-hmm. it's just nice to get recognition, you know, for the work that you do, because um, most of us, myself included. Most of us, we never really acknowledge the work that we do. Like we, we know it's impactful, but we never give ourselves the flowers, you know. So it's nice to, when, to see that other people are acknowledging and recognizing you for what you do. That is so true. I think even when it comes to just a patient coming to you maybe a year later or a few months later just to say, hi it's me thank you so much i'm still you know that's the best feeling that's the best feeling ever like i i used to cry a lot especially with my kitties i love my kitties you know Mm. i love working with kids and like when you see them like improve in literally everything language everything school it Mm. just makes Mm. you so proud and also they always get attached like because we see them like on a regular basis so they always get attached to us and then when you have to discharge them oh man you just feel so bad yeah Uh, it's the saddest but yeah that's one thing that really makes me feel you know very proud of what i do yeah yeah okay so my second it's not a question now this one you have to fill out the sentence or complete the sentence okay publishing my book meant this to me it meant proving to myself that I can do anything I want to do and I can be whoever I want to be that's actually so brilliant okay question three being part of the LGBTQI plus community means? It means being creative, guys. Oh, that's the perfect word to describe my community. It means being creative. Yes. Uh, but to me, it just, it also means 
Okay, it's just that when you say when you said LGBTQI plus community, I just thought of the rainbow. It was like <laughs> creativity, <laughs> creativity. Um, it, it yeah, actually, yo, I'm sticking to that answer. It it means being creative because um, you literally create new versions of yourself every single day. When something doesn't work, you you try something else. So it, mm-hmm. for me, it yeah yeah ah, it's the best. Being creative. Mm. Thank you. And I think that actually embodies you as a whole because you are a creative. It does. It does. Number four, the mantra that you live by is? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes. Yeah. Um, When was the last time you had to remind yourself of that mantra? Just before this interview. Just, be, just before this interview. And the reason why I was so nervous is because I haven't done interviews in a long time. I think my last interview was with Ukozi FM, which is like maybe three years ago. And so like, I was like, oh my God, now I'm going to be interviewed again. And people are going to scrutinize my words and how I think and what I say. And then I had to just be like, uh-uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I mean all things, literally all yes. things. Yeah. Yes. yeah. You know, I actually would have thought that you'd be more calm and cool and collected because you've done an interview already. No, no. I, I, I actually get nervous every single time I have to do, I have to be on TV or I have to um, <laughs> be interviewed. It's, it's, yeah. But also someone said something like, um, if, if you're not nervous about it, then you're not taking it serious enough. So being mm-hmm. nervous when you're about to do something is a good sign because it means you're taking it seriously, you know? Exactly. And most of the time it means you might even be, you know, moving out of your comfort zone. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. my final question to you is what is the best advice you've ever received? Be you, do you, boo. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, be you, be you, do you, boo. Yeah, that's literally the best advice I've ever received. Just be you and just do you, period. Just, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think all, all of this actually comes together when I, I think about the five, five questions that I just asked you. It's that, you know, you can do all things, you creative and you, you are you and you being you um, and you literally just living your life to the fullest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and does. Uh, I thank you once again for coming onto my show. Thank you so uh, much, Kanya. Thank you. Love, love, love the personality, and I need to be invited to the book launch, please. Oh my thank- god, you you definitely <laughs> coming. You definitely coming. Thank you so much for having me. I actually had fun, even though I was nervous at first, but I really, really had fun. Um, so for people who are listening and, you know, they'd like to make use of your services or they just want to connect with you, uh, where can they find you? On social media, Twitter and Instagram, I am Ikendanzi underscore. Um, on Facebook, I am Ikendanzi's Scary Stories. On YouTube, I am Ikendanzi and that's where they, they will find me. Well, if you've enjoyed today's episode please share it with three of your friends you believe would enjoy it too. Also, head on over to our social media pages at The Adventures of OT Podcast 
on Instagram and Facebook and tell us which part of this episode you enjoyed most. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.